Lord God, we need you this evening. We need you every evening, Lord. This evening in particular, we need you. This past week, God, we've seen death. We have seen sin. We've seen destruction. And Lord, it feels to us at times as if hell is winning. And yet, Lord, we come to your word once again. We've just sang, speak to us. And Lord, we do this tonight as we do every Saturday because we believe that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. That Jesus, you are on the throne and you have defeated death and sin and Satan. And one day you will return to make all the wrong things right and to make all the sad things come untrue. And so we come to your word again and we ask that you would speak to us from it. That you would teach us full obedience, holy reverence, true humility as we seek to live in your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our study of 1 Timothy, which we are beginning to wind down, we only have a few more weeks in 1 Timothy, in our study through this book, we've seen that the church is the household of God. That Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, has created a people, has created a family for God. It doesn't matter where you're from. If you're from whatever country, whatever background, whatever class, through faith in Jesus, you are united not only to Jesus, but to Jesus's people. And we have true fellowship with one another as a family. We've looked at the way that this church is to be structured, the sort of beliefs that the church is supposed to hold, the leaders the church is supposed to have. One of the reasons why elders are called to manage their own households well is because the church is God's household. And if you can't manage your own household, then how are you going to care for God's church? We've seen how the church as a family cares for the needs of each other and it builds itself up in love. And as the Apostle Paul is drawing his letter to his disciple Timothy to a close, he shifts metaphors and he reminds us that the church is not only a family that we belong to, the church is a kingdom. It is an embassy of the kingdom of God. And Christians are called to live as citizens of heaven while they are here on earth. If you go to the Philippines embassy in Abu Dhabi, you will see a place that is set apart in order to help Filipinos live as citizens of the Philippines while in a foreign land. That embassy represents the interest of the Philippines to the UAE. And in many ways, you could say that building is where the kingdom of the Philippines meets the kingdom of the UAE. Local churches are like that. Churches are embassies. We are outposts of the kingdom of God. While we are in this earth, we are truly in this earth. We are in this world, but we are citizens of heaven. 
And as so, we are called to not forget our identity, but we are called to live as such. So we're going to actually spend the next two weeks in these verses that Adrienne just read for us. This week, we're going to get through verse 14, and we're going to look at specifically how Christians live as kingdom citizens. And next week, we're going to spend our time looking at who God is, looking at the different words that the Apostle Paul uses to describe God. But here's the main thing that we're going to see this evening as we work through this passage. We're going to see that Christians are called to live as citizens of God's kingdom as they anticipate the return of Jesus, God's king. Christians here on earth are to live as citizens of God's kingdom, anticipating the return of God's king, Jesus Christ. And to see that, we're going to look at two headings. The first is kingdom life, and the second is kingdom hope. So first, let's look at kingdom life. What does it look like to live as citizens of another kingdom? What does it look like to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven while here on earth? Look at verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. These verses contain five imperatives, five commands that the Apostle Paul is giving Timothy in particular and all Christians in general. Paul says, flee false teaching and false godliness. So we looked at last week. That's what the these things, flee these things, refers back to false doctrine, false teaching, but also false religion, a way of living that is set on the gains of this world rather than the gains of eternity. Second, pursue Christ-like living. Live the way that Jesus would live. Embody Christian virtue. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. The third command is fight the good fight of faith. Fourth, Take hold of eternal life and then keep the commandment unstained. That is, live a holy life in obedience to all that Jesus has commanded us. And these lists, these imperatives that we see, they're not like a random shopping list, like if you were going to get groceries at Carrefour. This isn't a random list with nothing that connects them, like hummus, hand soap, laundry detergent, undershirts, and toothbrushes. You could have a list like that and you would say the only thing that those things have in common is that they're picked up at Carrefour. 
These lists, though, these commands are instead like a recipe. These are commands that relate one to another to show what it looks like to live as a kingdom citizen. Just like if you put flour and sugar, salt, baking powder, eggs, milk, oil, you put all those things together and when you cook it the right way, you'll get pancakes. If you put these commands together and you live in obedience to them, you will get a heavenly-minded citizen living under the rule and reign of Jesus. This is what kingdom living looks like. And we can see that God's kingdom is the glue that holds this passage together. It's not direct on the surface necessarily, but it's running underneath it and it's keeping it together. Verses 15, in verse 15 it describes God as the sovereign, that is the big king, the authority. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He has an eternal dominion. That means he rules forever. In verse 16, it points to that eternal dominion. But those aren't the only references to God's kingdom at the back half of this section. We have to work a little bit harder to see the other, but once we see it, we see how all this fits together. So you see the words there, good confession? Do you see that in verse 12? Good confession shows up twice in our passage. Paul reminds Timothy of the good confession. He said, Timothy, take hold of eternal life, to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession. Now this either refers to Timothy's baptism. When Timothy was initiated publicly, he went public with his faith and said, I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And by faith in Jesus, in Jesus' death and resurrection to pay for sins, Timothy was buried with Christ into the water. And as Jesus rose from the dead, Timothy was raised with Christ out of the water, symbolizing that he is a citizen of Christ's kingdom. It could be Timothy's baptism when he made this good confession, or it could be Timothy's ordination when he was set apart for gospel ministry. We've seen throughout the letter of 1 Timothy, Paul has encouraged Timothy to remember. Remember when hands were laid upon you and you were commissioned to this work. That could have been when Timothy made the good confession. But either way, Timothy at one point in time confessed. And we need to ask, what did he confess? What is the content of his confession? We can learn this by looking at the second appearance of this. In verse 13, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So Jesus made the same confession as Timothy. He made the good confession when Jesus was on trial before Pontius Pilate before he would be crucified to die for the sins of the world. Now, we can sometimes think of a confession as saying that we have done wrong. We confess our sins. But confession is really, it could be understood that way, but it can be understood as a statement of fact or a statement of allegiance. We confess an allegiance to a country. Or our church has a statement of faith. That is a confession. 
It says what we believe as a church, the truths that we hold to and that we teach. So Jesus and Timothy, they made the same confession. And what did Jesus confess when he was on trial before Pontius Pilate? We see this in John 18. Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. That I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What's Jesus' confession here? It's a confession of his kingship. It's his confession of the nature of his kingdom. He is a king, but he has a kingdom that is not of this world. His kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. It does not belong to the sinful system of this world. His kingdom is a kingdom of truth. It is not an option or a kingdom. It is the option, the kingdom. It is a kingdom above all earthly powers. The good confession of Jesus' kingship and his kingdom, this good confession that Paul reminds Timothy of, and reminds all of us of, shapes the way in which we live in this world. We live as those who are citizens of heaven, who confess our allegiance to a heavenly king. The values of Jesus' kingdom are the opposite of the values of the sinful system of this world. Some of the members of our church have been working through the Gospel of Mark using the following Jesus study that we put together. And as we've been working through the Gospel of Mark, time after time after time, we've seen that the people of Israel were totally fine understanding Jesus as a king. The disciples had no problems getting to Jesus as a king, but time and time and time again, they mess up in understanding what sort of king is Jesus. They think that Jesus is a king like all the other kings of this world are, or that his kingdom is an earthly kingdom alone. And they miss the fact that Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It's a kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first. It's a kingdom where the poor in spirit are blessed and those who mourn are comforted. It's a kingdom that is the opposite of the kingdom of this world. And when the disciples failed to see that that's the sort of king that Jesus is, they failed to see the beauty and the glory of Christ's kingdom. This world is marked by, just, by injustice and corruption, but Jesus' kingdom is one where perfect justice, perfect righteousness flows. This world is marked by false teaching and false godliness, but Christ's kingdom is one of genuine godliness. It's the one where the religion on the outside reflects the heart on the inside. And it's marked by holy living. 
This world is characterized by believing what it sees, whether that is seeing the power of money, seeing the power of control, of status. The kingdom of Christ is marked by believing what we do not currently see, but what one day will be made visible for all to see. This world is marked by anger and hostility, but Christ's kingdom is marked by love, by gentleness, by steadfastness. Going back to the Philippines embassy in Abu Dhabi, Filipinos in the UAE, they don't stop living like Filipinos just because they are here. I've been in our Tagalog Bible study, and Filipinos eat food that's very different than the food that Americans eat. Most of it's delicious, not the balut. I'm sorry. Americans don't stop living like Americans, even though we're here in the UAE. I will never not be an American. Ghanaians, Nigerians, Indians, South Africans, we don't stop being where we are from. We don't stop swearing allegiance to our home countries just because we're not in our home countries. And Christians live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, even though we are here on this earth. Our holy, pure, just, righteous living shows that we swear allegiance to a king whose kingdom is not of this world. But this sort of living requires intentionality. It requires activity and purposefulness. I mean, just, just look at the words that Paul commands and the level of activity that each one is obtained. This is not a passive sort of living, a floating through the kingdom. Flee. Pursue. Fight. Take hold. Keep. Timothy, if you are going to live as a citizen of heaven here on earth, you have to be purposeful. Your will has to be involved. You have to be active in doing so. Because the current world that we live in is opposed to the kingdom of God. It's not neutral. One of my favorite theologians, a guy named John Owen, who my son is named after, he famously wrote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. If you are not putting your sin to death, then your sin is putting you to death. There is no middle ground. We cannot approach sin passively or as something that is neutral. If we do not flee sin and pursue godliness, then we'll be, we will be sinful and ungodly. If we do not fight the good fight of faith, then we will find out that we have no faith at all. If we do not live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven now, then it might be because we aren't citizens of the kingdom of heaven now. Christians are called to activity. Our text tonight is almost all imperatives, commands. We are called to obey. 
But it's really important that we see that we are called to activity, but we are not saved by our activity. Your living as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven doesn't make you a citizen of a kingdom of heaven. You can fake living like an American. You can have the cowboy accent, buy a whole lot of big, greasy American food at McDonald's. You can wear baggier jeans and baggier shirts. It's not going to make you an American. You were born into the country of America. Our righteous living doesn't make us citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It reflects that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. If you're, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, then this is really important for you to understand. Christians, we care about obeying God. We care about it more than we care about anything else in this world. But we care about obeying God not in order to become one of God's citizens, not in order to become one of God's children. We care about it because we have been called into God's family already. Do you see that in our passage? Timothy, take hold of the eternal life. Take hold, Timothy. Grab it. Hold on. The eternal life to which you were called. Timothy takes hold because he has been called. This is similar to what the Apostle Paul will say in his letter to the Philippians when he says, Philippian church, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Live your salvation. Pursue salvation, church. Why? Because it is God who works in you. That's what that for means. We work out because God is working in and through us. We take hold of eternal life by trusting in Jesus for it and by living in light of it. This is why it's called a fight of faith. We fight by faith, trusting God to do what he has already done and what he has already promised. The reason kingdom living makes sense in this world is because God has promised. He has promised a coming kingdom. And this leads to our second heading that we see, kingdom hope. Listen to verses 13 through 16. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession I charge you, Timothy, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Kingdom living makes sense because of the guarantee of Jesus' return. God has promised, God has set apart 
a proper time for Jesus' return. And God is not weak or impotent, unable to bring it about. Listen to the words that Paul stacks up to show that Timothy can trust this promise. He is the Almighty, the Sovereign, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who has all power, who has all dominion. He has promised that Jesus will return. So you can trust it. You can hope. The mystery of Jesus' kingdom, though, is that it has already begun, but it has not yet been brought fully to completion. The kingdom of God, Christ's kingdom, began on this earth when Jesus came. Though he was God, he was born of a woman. And he lived a perfect life preaching the good news of the kingdom of God and living in light of God's law perfectly. Jesus lived the perfect life that no one on this earth has. He is the perfect king. When Jesus walked this earth 2,000 years ago, he had the character and the authority to rule perfectly. He is also the merciful king. He who had no sin died in the place of sinners so that we who are sinful can be brought into God's kingdom by faith. And he is the triumphant king. He defeated death and hell, rising from the dead three days after his own death and appearing to his disciples. He came and he established the kingdom of God. He rose from the dead and then he ascended to heaven where Jesus is right now, ruling at God's right hand. And he empowered his church to live as kingdom citizens on this earth, witnessing to those around us of the king who is reigning from God's right hand. We see this in Acts chapter 1. When they, the disciples, had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Paul was writing these words that we're looking at tonight. He was writing these words 30 years after this event had taken place. We are reading these words almost 2,000 years after these events had taken place. And yet the return of Christ is no less sure 
Then when the men saw him go to heaven, an angel stood by their side and said, why are you staring? Live as citizens of this kingdom. The same Jesus who went to heaven will one day come again to establish his kingdom on earth. But right now, we live in the overlap of the ages. We live in the already and in the not yet between Jesus' resurrection and his return. And so we live with hope. Not hope as in wishful thinking, as in I hope it will be a good day tomorrow, but hope as in biblical hope, confident waiting for Jesus' return. And how we need hope as Christians. Because sometimes the kingdom of this world looks like it's the most real thing that there is. That we can't see through the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of heaven that we actually belong to. That the brokenness of this world can be all around us. In the past two weeks, there have been two mass shootings in my home country. One of which involving the death of 19 children who are my daughter's age. In the last week, there was a report released that the largest convention in my home country has had challenges and difficulties reporting sexual abuse inside the church. That a little bit of the kingdom of this world had been in the embassy of God's kingdom. In the last month, there have been riots in Sri Lanka. People unable to buy food, unable to get what they need to survive. There have been protests in the Philippines. In the last four months, there has been war in Ukraine and countless lives lost and peoples displaced. And the brokenness and the sin goes on. We've had genocide in China and Myanmar, looting and corruption in South Africa, civil war in Yemen and Syria, hypocrisy from government officials in the UK. And that's just recently. We got 2,000 years of this brokenness. This world is broken and groaning under the weight of sin. How can Christians not lose heart? How can Christians not throw it all away and say, this must be an empty bag of goods? Because of the return of King Jesus leads to the healing of this world. Because we look forward to the coming King who will one day make all things new. And so we do not lose heart and we do not lose holiness. We never forget where we came from and we live as citizens of Christ's kingdom. As I've gotten older, one of my favorite stories has become the Lord of the Rings. I love how J.R.R. Tolkien, the author, writes about the king, Aragorn, when Aragorn, the king of Gondor, when he comes back into the city of Minas Tirith, some of you may have seen the movie or have read the book, he's worked this great defeat 
of the enemy. And he comes into the city where he is the rightful ruler of. His identity is not known because of his bravery or his valor on the battlefield. The way that he is known as king is because of the healing that he brings with him. As an old woman is ministering to the sick and to the dying, she looks around at the chaos and she cries out, would that there were kings in Gondor as there once were upon the time. For it is said in old lore, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so the rightful king could ever be known. And as Aragorn comes into the city, the healing that he brings with him shows this is the king who has come to rule. Men came and they prayed that he would heal their kinsmen or their friends whose lives were in peril through hurt or wound or who lay under the black shadow. And Aragorn the king arose and went out and labored far into the night. And word went throughout the city, the king is come again indeed. The healing of the city marked the return of the king. Friends, Aragorn is but a poor, made-up picture of King Jesus. The healing that Jesus will bring will not last a moment. It will last an eternity. The healing that Jesus will bring will not be restricted to the sick or the dying, but to the dead. The healing that Jesus will bring will not only be for humanity, but for all of creation as he establishes a new heaven and a new earth. And this hope produces a kingdom life here and now as we live waiting for the return of the king. Second Peter puts it like this. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth coming as though through fire. What sort of people should we be since all these things are this way? In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Christian, kingdom hope produces kingdom life. When we look forward to the return of Jesus, God's king, we live as citizens of Jesus' kingdom here on earth. We fight the good fight of faith. We keep the commandment unstained, living holy lives and pursuing Christ's likeness in our conduct. We have loves and desires and affections that are shaped by Jesus' kingdom. And we confess his lordship over every area of our lives. We don't hold anything in our lives back from Jesus' rule because we know that we have a king who will heal the world, who will deal with sin, who will judge evil, and who will one day transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. 
And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will one day transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then he ends this way. Therefore, my brothers, who I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Christian, in light of this glorious hope that we have, we can stand firm when all around us gives way because Christ is all our hope and stay. Our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior who will one day make all things new. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would come. We do not know the day, we do not know the hour, but we do know that it is a sure promise. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus. Right every wrong. And as we wait, we pray that you would bring more and more people into your kingdom by faith. And that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.